Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now one of the things that is probably beyond debate is that life is a struggle on many levels. There's a struggle to find work, to pay bills, to save up money, to raise kids, to find employment, to keep yourself busy, all sorts of daily struggles. But at the same time, underlying it all, there's a bigger struggle going on. And this is a struggle to understand what we're doing on the planet Earth and to come to grips with the big questions. Now, this struggle doesn't always come to the surface but it's always sort of humming in the background. And some people direct themselves to dealing with the big question. And some people just sort of let it go and maybe go through life without dealing with it. But this show is about what um, the world is coming to, where the world is heading. And today I'm lucky to have on the show uh, Rabbi Wayne Dosick, who um, PhD, DD, who's going to uh, tell us a little bit about his new book. But I, I want to close close off my lead point a little bit here and talk about what modern science says about who we are and why this question about the struggle is so important. According to Richard Dawkins, the famous neo-Darwinian, we are survival machines, robot vehicles, blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. And if we really were robot vehicles, then maybe life would be simpler. We, we would know that we had a lifespan, uh, that at some point we would rust away the gears would stop functioning, the computers would stop working, we would rust away, crumble, die, and that would be the end of it. However, in the real world, there is something going on that has been a constant struggle for the human mind. And that is, we all seem to have an underlying consciousness. There seems to be a unitary consciousness that's been written about for millennia. There's also something else. There is an unmistakable notion of God, of a, of a superior, higher being resting in the background of our minds. So if I may disagree with Mr. Dawkins, we are more than robot vehicles. And it's coming to terms with what this underlying notion is, this underlying consciousness is something more that really is, I believe, the challenge for humankind. Now, as I said, we have on the show today, somebody who's thought a lot about this question and given, given it a lot of, of um, his own original spin. 
As I said, his name is Rabbi Wayne Dosick. Um, he is a best-selling and award-winning author of nine critically acclaimed books, including uh, what is considered to be a classic, Living Judaism, and the more recent, The Real Name of God, Embracing the Full Essence of the Divine. He's authored more than 400 articles, a religious, political, and social commentary. He hosts a monthly internet radio program called Spirit Live, Spirit Talk Live, as heard on healthylife.net. He's a retired visiting professor at the University of San Diego. Now, um, Wayne is here today to talk a little bit about his brand new book, which is so new it has not quite come out. Now, the name of the book is called Radical Loving, One God, One World, One People. Uh, Wayne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be back with you again uh, after a hiatus of a number of years when we talked about my last book, The Real Name of God. Yeah, so it, it is. It is good having you back. It's amazing how time flies, and what, and but we we seem to confront the same challenges. But hopefully, we're making a little bit of progress. So you have a new book, and I want to uh, recommend this book to the listener. It is really an original book, and one thing I will say about it is that it's sort of a a mixture of revelation, inspiration, and words words of wisdom, and all sort of intermingled with very entertaining stories. So it really, it's a uniquely written book. And with that uh, background, uh, Wayne, why did you write this book now in your career? Well, first of all, thank you for that compliment. That's uh, a beautiful summary of the book. I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I took one look around at the world in which we live and I'm pretty pained by it as so many of us are. Uh, this beautiful world. I mean, we, we, we live in an incredible times and we are the crowning work of creation and our medical and technological advances are tremendous and we've evolved human consciousness so we begin to understand more and more the mysteries of the universe and we live with racism and sexism and inequality and uh, divisions of religion and, and nations and terrorism and human and civil rights being trampled and overwrought egos trying to dominate the world. And it's a very painful and it's very bewildering, bewildering, I'm so sorry. And since the world has become such a tiny village, we have to learn to get it together, because unless we get it together and do it together, uh, we can perish together in this world. So uh, this is really, in many ways, like an ancient biblical call, an urgent call to fix our world, to heal it, to balance it, to transform it. So it's a call for a radical revolution in human consciousness and the evolution and transformation of our world. Well, you know, I, I think you hit upon something, and this, this is something that I myself have struggled with, um, which is how to sort of um, convince the normal person on the street 
that we should all be awestruck at the miracle of existence. And it, it seems to me, just to, to um, elaborate on that point, that uh, in many instances, uh, these, these ailments, these illnesses of modern society that you summarize and that you discuss more in your book, to me, show that many people take uh, the miracle of the world for granted. Uh, and to maybe give a religious tone to that, that they take God for granted. And I, I'd like you to maybe speak to that point uh, because you're right, there is an incredible uh, uh, sort of contrast between the beauty of nature and the way some people conduct themselves um, in, in the face of the, of the wonders of nature. Well, the theme song of the world these days seems to me to be, my God's better than your God. And my scriptures are better than your scriptures, and my core principles are better than yours, and my God loves me more, uh, and um, loves my nation more, and uh, therefore I am superior to you, and I am the most powerful, and I am the most important, and if you don't believe me, I will terrorize you. And if you still don't believe, I'll try to convince you first. And if you still don't believe me, I'll terrorize you. And if you really don't believe me, I'll threaten to kill you. Yeah. The reality is that that's impossible because there is only one God. There's one God who is the parent of us all and who loves us all equally. God doesn't play favorites. God loves all God's children equally. And God says to us, here, I'm going to give you a set of rules by which to live. I created you, I know you, and I know how you will best get along with each other. So here's a set of rules. And he gave, God, he, she gave one set of rules, let's say, to the pagans. And then the Hebrews, the early Jews came along, and there was another set of rules. And then Christianity came along, and then Islam came along, and the Native Americans, and the Eastern, all the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism. And part of the problem is that too many adherents to each one of these religions say, mine's better than yours, and since it came after yours, it has to be better. It's not so. Wisdom is wisdom, and the wisdom teachers of the world belong to the entire world. And instead of being replacement theology, it's additional theology and philosophy and ways of living based on evolving human consciousness. So everything that God has given us is worthy and worthwhile. And one of the things that God says to us is, don't be so arrogant. I have given you this beautiful, beautiful world in which to live. Appreciate it. And we know that for sure these days, because if we don't appreciate the world, and if we don't take care of it, people call it climate change, call it climate warming, call it global warming, call it environmentalism, call it whatever you want. It's all true. That if we don't take care of this planet on which we live, the planet will implode and we'll have nowhere to live. So what we need to learn is that we are all one. And that's what a good deal of what radical loving is about, about oneness consciousness, that we are all one. There is one God, 
We are all one children of the one God. We live in one world for which we are all responsible. And we have to be united in compassion and in love and in decency and in dignity and in goodness and in righteousness. And that's the way, the pathway, the only pathway of our future. And that is, and that is really uh, well stated. And I think that uh, maybe the listener could, could appreciate uh, what Wayne just said. And, and this is sort of uh, also reflected in his book, which is that you're taking a, a very universal perspective on, if I may say, religion, which is, which is all religions point to the same truth. And you, you say it in your, um, you, you have a, a quote here in your book that I'll, I'll read, which I, which I noted. It says, quote, to the Hebrews, I gave the Bible. To the Christians, I gave the New Testament. To the Muslims, I gave the Koran. To the people of the East, I gave sacred ideas, speaking on, on behalf of God. And so these, these are different routes to the same goal. And too, too often, these different routes find themselves in conflict as if it's a sports competition and there's different teams and each team is, is trying to curry favor with the boss. And, and that's sort of, uh, you know, the history of, of, of religious warfare speaks to that. And, and I think that we need people like you and many others to take the more universal standpoint uh, and to talk about how all religions point to the same endpoint. Now, now I, um, one of the things that I've given a lot of thought to, and I haven't um, reached a conclusion, but I'm, I'm, this, is a, this is the big question for me here, is how do you or we convince people that recognizing the oneness of God or the, or the universality of humankind, how, how, is, how is it done? It, is it done through emotion, reason, logic, math? You know, what's your answer to that question? What, what do you think is gonna convince people the truth? There are, many, there are many different pathways and each pathway is different because oneness does not mean sameness. There's beauty in, the, in each of the pathways. Uh, and so I'll just give you an example from my own life. I grew up on the Southeast side of Chicago. It was a, in, in the late forties, when I was born, it was a Polish Catholic steelworkers neighborhood. It became a partly Jewish neighborhood uh, by the sixties and by the seventies, it was an entirely black neighborhood. So in the beginning, I played with all the kids on the playground. And then when we were five, six, we went to public school and the Catholic kids went to Catholic school, St. Mary Magdalene Parish, still there. And by the time I was seven or eight, I was being beaten up by my former friends who had learned from their priests and nuns that I, Wayne Dasek, had personally killed their Lord. Then in the early 60s, uh, I was in uh, high school. I, I went to one of those high schools that looked like a prison, you know, the, the five floors of red brick, 
in, right. in Chicago. And in one of the four minute passing between classes, a girl runs up to me and says, Wayne, Wayne, I forgive you. I forgive you. I said, Bonnie, what is it? What is it? She said, I forgive you for killing Christ. I said, what are you talking about? That was 2000 years ago. I wasn't there. I didn't know him. I wouldn't kill anybody. She said, no, no, no. I just heard on the radio that the Pope said, we can forgive the Jews for killing Christ. Now, that was, of course, Pope John the 23rd, and that was the uh, Vatican II, and that was a gigantic step. Fast forward to the middle, late 1980s, into the 90s and into the 2000s, and I find myself a rabbi on the faculty of the University of San Diego, a private liberal arts Catholic university, where I'm teaching the only courses in Jewish studies in the Department of Religion and Theology, where I am invited to preach from the pulpit of the Immaculata, where one of my closest and dearest friends is a Jesuit priest, originally from Milwaukee, was in San Diego on a compassion leave to take care of his mother and teaching at, at USD at the same time. And we became, he became one of my most intimate friends in the world. And, um, we're walking around campus one day and a young man runs up to us and says, Rabbi, Father, can I talk to you? Of course. He said, I want you to know, I came here. I had never met a Jew before. Father O'Leary said, you know, I was 21 years old before I met a Jew. I was already in seminary before I met a Jew. That was obviously many, many years ago. And this young man said to us, you know, I had prejudice against Jews because I had heard bad things about them. But I see the two of you, you're such good friends and you're teaching on this faculty together and you, uh, you, you, go, you go to mass and you pray together. So I guess that the two of you are a living sermon. And if you can get along, then I have to learn to get along with Jews. Hmm. Now that's, a, that's the story of my life in many, many ways. Yeah. And that's the story of the last 50, 60 years could never have happened before. And it's happening now. And that can be with everything. We were speaking about the environment a little, a little while ago. Well, we've been throwing plastic bottles into the ocean that the uh, dolphins and the whales are eating. And we've been using up a bunch of fossil fuels and we've been, uh, we've been uh, cutting down trees to, uh, to make the paper that we throw away from our computer printers. There are ways in each and every human endeavor for us to make our contribution to a just and a peaceful world and to, and to live not through anger and fear and not to demonize the other, but to know that everybody is our brother and our sister to see in the face of another human being the face of God, because when we see the face of God, there's only one way we can react, and that's with love. And if we see the face of God in God, we see the face of God in every other human being, we can only react with love. And when we react with love, then we can fix this world. You know, it seems like what you're saying is the greater integration of I'm going to use the word religious ideals. It could be spiritual ideals. The integration of spiritual ideals into daily life. And, and I will say that this is one of the things that is 
been observed multiple times. It's always bothered me. And, you know, I was raised Catholic. Uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic. But the notion that folks go to church uh, once a week in a building and they pray and they, and they honor uh, the Savior, these holy um, thoughts, these um, surpassing ideals, and then they go outside the building and they act like just normal sort of greedy, selfish people. Um, and the, the problem, it's so obvious, is that the ideals are not being carried out. Uh, I, I think that you mentioned in your, in your book about how the golden rule uh, permeates a lot of religions. And, and it's been perhaps with the um, slowly rising uh, interest in spirituality, um, I've heard that spirituality books have sold well during COVID. Um, maybe that is a indication, Wayne, that the notion of spirituality is is starting to permeate humankind a little bit. What do you What do you think about that? If we read our Bible correctly, then we know that the ancient prophets called out always for social justice. One of our great teachers the late and, and, and much lamented Rabbi Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel marched with Dr. King numerous times, was in jail with Dr. King, where by the way, Dr. King ate kosher food because the rabbis who were arrested insisted on getting kosher food in jail in either Montgomery or Selma. Uh, and um, at one of the marches, Dr., uh, Dr. Heschel was heard to say, I was praying with my feet. The, the holiest day of the Jewish year, Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, we read in the synagogue service the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, who says to us, speaking for God, uh, I don't care anything about your religious celebrations or your rites. I don't care any rites, R-I-T-E-S. I don't care anything about your fast days or about your um, religious observances if and unless there are amongst you the hungry whom you have not fed and the naked whom you have not clothed and the homeless whom you have not sheltered and the illiterate whom you have, um, whom you do not teach. So the entire history of religion is the history of doing good for and with each other. And when we do good, we do well. So in Judaism, we call it tikkun olam, the, the repair, the balancing, the healing of the world. Christianity calls it good works. And that's part of what we write about in this book, which is that we have to create sacred community. Sacred community means that, that we all have a responsibility to each other, to the common good, to the greater good, to the greatest good. America, which was supposed to be this great melting pot where we all come together, has unfortunately become a, what I call a, um, a frayed patchwork quilt. 
that it has become a den of social interest. Me, 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 my needs. My, and I, I have to say, as a lifelong baseball fan, and if those, for those of you in the Chicago area where Philip is and where I grew up, uh, the highlight of my childhood was 1959 when the White Sox won the pennant. In those years, we all knew every player. We knew their, their uniform numbers. We knew their batting averages. And often we knew them because they weren't making this tremendous amount of money. And they lived in the community. And uh, one of the guys lived, his grandma lived in our neighborhood. And he, when he went to visit grandma, he would come to the playground, throw out a ball or two and play catch with us. And uh, some of them uh, worked in the local car dealerships or an insurance agency. And during the winter, they came to the churches and the synagogues for the father-son-daughter dinners and shook hands and gave autographs. We knew them. And if somebody were traded away, the whole city went into mourning. And then, look, the, the America was built on the back of labor unions, and I love labor unions, and they're wonderful. But what happened with the Kurt Flood case was that the players, the, the result of that case and free agency in baseball was that players now don't care so much about their city. They don't even care so much about their team. They care about their own statistics, me, 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 so that I can sell myself to the highest bidder in the next time my contract is up. And contrasting that is not me, not me. I'm not responsible. Here are all the reasons why I did what I did. And you see, I'm not responsible for any of them. So not me, not me. So we have this this uh, patchwork quilt of special interests. And what we need to get back to is creating a sacred community which understands that what happens to one happens to all and that we all have to strive for the common good, for the greatest good. Yeah, and I, th I think that um, part of the problem is the lack of leaders and or the or the the um, performance conduct of our leaders, folks who are in higher office, many of them don't realize that for better or worse, they set role models for younger kids for humanity, whether they think they are or not. And when the politicians sort of get in, in, into constant slugfests, mudslinging contests, and insult uh, games, then that reflects upon society at large, I think. And it's, it's very difficult in this country, and I think it's a real problem, for, to have a honest to good, good person uh, be, be president. Uh, I, I remember when the first, um, George Bush gave his, I think it was his, his inaugural speech where he talked about a kinder, gentler nation. And he was laughed at for being sort of a wimp. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and that, that was a powerful statement. It still, it still, needs, it still needs to be true. Um, however, I think that those of us who are on the other side, we have to have faith that despite this this opposition, uh, this, despite the, the what seems to be the immovable object of competition, greed, selfishness, that the that the spiritual movement's going to win in the end. <laughs> I mean, that's that's sort of the dream. I mean, I I mean, you know, you talk about um, 
God's dream. And I have this, I have this written down here. I thought it was a very good, yeah. It says, this is a quote from your book. God wants fulfillment of the original divine dream that earth be overflowing with goodness and, and love that all of God's children dwell in peace and harmony. And what is the original divine dream? That's it. Eden, look, yeah. in, in Eden, there was no separation. Right. All was wholeness. And with whatever you want to call it, the fall, or however you want to theologically term it, when we were uh, separated from Eden, we were separated from God and separated from each other. And we get the Tower of Babel, and we get the Noah's Flood, and we get all the kinds of things that have broken humanity apart. The, the goal of this uh, book, in many, many ways, is to say, when we can recognize and come into oneness consciousness, we can bring Eden to earth once again. So to respond to what you were saying about leadership, words have tremendous power. Words have the power to elevate the human spirit or to crush the human spirit. And we have spent the last four years having listening to words that have been divisive and hateful and have encouraged division and hate and let the, the haters come out from under their rocks into the light of day. And I think even in the last hundred days, the tone is beginning to change. So on one hand, uh, it's absolutely true that leadership creates the tone of those who are to be led. At the same time, and this is very important, at the same time, each one of us has the control and the power over our own lives. So there is the power of community that we were speaking about just earlier, and there is the power of one. And I write in the book in Radical Loving about my um, idea of F-A-N-A-M-I, find a need and meet it. What does that mean? It means that, well, many years ago, in 1996, uh, my house burned down in a California wildfire. My wife and I lost our house and everything, everything, everything in it. And afterwards, one of the kindest, gentlest, wealthiest men I know came to me and said, Rabbi, what's mine is yours. Ask me for anything. Sure. So what was I going to say to the man? Um, buy me dinner, buy me a suit, build me a house. You can't do that. Right. It's, often when somebody dies or there's a tragedy in the family or somebody's undergoing a deep, um, deep uh, tragedy, uh, we often say, anything you want, just call me, just call me. Uh, I'm here for you. And nobody ever does. Nobody calls. So find a need and meet it. It means if somebody uh, dies and, and family are coming in for the funeral, uh, say, to the, say to the mourner, what time is your um, uncle coming in at the airport? I'll go down and pick him up. Do you, are your shirts at the dry cleaners? Do you need a shirt to go to the funeral? I'll go pick it up for you. I'll take the kids for pizza tonight. So I learned this, I have to say, from a lesson 
uh, I learned this well from a lesson that my then five or six year old son taught me. He's now close to 50. So he, there is there was an ancient rabbi. It is said of him that whenever he went to the market, he would buy two pieces of meat or two bunches of vegetables, one for himself and one for the poor and the needing in his community. So when my kids were little, we tried to translate that into modern times. So whenever we went to the grocery store, every time we went, we would buy one more item of non-perishable food a box of cereal, a can of tuna fish, a jar of peanut butter. And we wouldn't even take it in the house, put it into a brown paper sack in the trunk of the car. And when that sack was full, we would take it to the local food pantry. So one day I'm in the store with my then five, six-year-old, and I take a box of Cheerios off the shelf. And I say to him, hey, Seth, how about this for our uh, food gift this week? And he looked at me in sort of righteous indignation. He grabbed the box out of my hand, put it back on the shelf, reached up on his little tippy toes and took a box of sugar frosted flakes off the shelf. And he said, this will be our food gift this week. And I said to him, honey, what's the difference? Cereal, cereal. He said, look, dad, there are hungry kids out there too. And kids like sugar frosted flakes better than we like Cheerios. In an instant, that kid taught me to see the faces of the people who we were helping to feed, not just the category, not just the hungry, not just the poor, not just the needing or the needy at that particular moment, but the faces of those people. So, you know, we all make Thanksgiving baskets to give out. And we give out turkey and yams and sweet potatoes and stuffing and all the normal things. I ask people to get a, uh, to make sure there's a a bottle of sparkling apple cider there, or a cake, a nicely decorated cake, or a bag full of colored jelly beans. Because if somebody needs a Thanksgiving dinner, he she probably uh, would like to have uh, a little luxury and is entitled to that luxury just as much as you and I are. I also tell people to give away a pair of socks. What does that mean? Well, we give away the old clothes that that are no longer in style or don't fit anymore. But you know, if a man needs a pair of pants, he probably also needs a pair of socks and no one thinks to give away a pair of socks. And to give away uh, toothpaste and toothbrushes and, um, and deodorant and soap and feminine hygiene uh, supplies, because if you need a pair of pants, you probably don't have a toothbrush either. So uh, these are the kinds of things that we can see the face of another and seeing the face of another means that we are seeing the face of God. And the only response, as I said previously, when we see the face of God and we see the face of God reflected in another human being is to respond in love. Yeah, and I think that that is a really good example of carrying these high sounding spiritual ideals down to earth, because ultimately it comes down to helping other people. And sometimes it's not just helping the poor and the needy. Sometimes it's just being a pleasant person. <laughs> sometimes it's just being nice or not taking offense at every little slight. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's, it's being a team player instead of being uh, always the, the king of the hill. The, the, um, the nice thing about your book is that 
it weaves together the higher ideals and real down to earth practical sort of examples, guidance like you gave. And, and I thought that the, the reference to Martin Luther King was very inspiring uh, in your book that you just summarized. So I, I wanna cover a couple of things here um, before we come to the end. And you talk a lot about um, the oneness consciousness. And I know you've, you've touched upon it and it's, it is really sort of the buzzword I think in, in uh, the spirituality literature right now, of course, it's the history of it is, as I said before, millennia. But what do you mean when you use uh, the term oneness consciousness about striving for this? What, how do you um, interpret it? For me, it means the constant recognition and celebration that we are all children, that we are all children of the one God. And that one God created us and is our parent. And, you know, we call God by different names, but it doesn't matter because in one family, uh, the, male, the male parent may be called father and another child may call him daddy and a third child may call him pops. And the mother, the, 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 the maternal parent may be called mom or mother or mama or mommy. It's all the same person. It doesn't matter what we call God. That's just our approach. That because we are individual human beings and we, are in, we, we do belong to different groupings of people based on ethnicity and geography and culture and sociology and anthropology, all kinds of different, uh, different things and basically how we are brought up. But we come to know that even though, let's say Father O'Leary and I had incredibly different backgrounds, we are all, and, and we, we come to God in different ways. God finds great beauty in those different ways in which we come, um, just as you would approach anything. Some people come singing and some people come in silence and some people dance and some people walk slowly and some people sit and meditate and some people uh, cheer along the way. Those are all differences that are beautiful differences and reflections of the different people and the different uh, groupings which we are. But at the core, at the core, we are all the same. We are children of the one God uh, who loves us all, who is the parent of us all, and we are all one human family, and we have to get along. There are, there are um, family fights all the time. There are family disagreements all the time, but ultimately family comes together, and family is the the stronghold of our existence. And we are a human family. And right now we are fighting terribly and we're fighting for power and wealth and, and prestige and, and uh, domination. We've got to stop that because that has gotten us nowhere. That's how we have behaved for millennia, if not for the entire history of the world since Eden, and it's gotten us nowhere. Oh, perhaps momentarily a nation's treasury is a bit fuller or the nation's boundaries are a bit uh, 
um, broader or wider, but these wars, these, these conflicts have put the best of our young people into graves, in the same graves, in the same ground, and eventually the blood of those precious children is calling out to us from the earth, and the earth is crying out, and the earth is saying to us right now, we can't take this anymore, we can't take this anymore, get along or we're, this earth is going to implode. So start taking care of us, start taking, taking care of each other. Be in oneness. Understand you are all one. What happens to one happens to all. And you have the power and the control to make that happen. Yeah, and one, one thing that, just to sort of give you a little bit of my slant here, and, and that, that is um, really sort of the message of, I think, of the new age. And one reason why I don't think that message is gonna change is because the message is true. And, and I've, I've always had this um, belief, and there's a couple that I think are sort of anchored in, in, in my uh, thinking, and I, I'm not original here, but one of them is, is that it's sort of like the, you know, the Sherlock Holmes, uh, uh, approach where where when 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 all uh, theories fail and all beliefs fail, whatever remains standing is the truth. the The truth is the truth because it doesn't change. And I think what we forget in our sort of uh, secular um, individualistic society is that is that a book called the Bible was written, in my opinion, in human history. It's part of history. It's not some kind of sort of freaked out hippies who came up with this cult um, and, and, and imagined uh, these fantasy stories. It, it, it's a book of, in human history and we tend to forget that. I know that that is ingrained in, in your writing. Uh, and, and, I, and one thing that I remember from the, the Martin Luther King quote in your book is that Martin Luther King says, the God of history. He uses the word of history. Um, and when you put that together with Pierre Del Chardin, um, who wrote the, the, uh, the great book, The Phenomena of Man, who basically uh, says that we evolve, we evolve from a single consciousness to this you know, global cosmic consciousness. Um, you, you, know, you start getting to the point where we understand that we are on this evolutionary trail, it is towards the one consciousness. And that's really the point I'm making here. And um, I don't know what you think about that, but I, I think that's really how I put it together. I think that we, we are on this very elongated, meandering, ups and, up and down, uh, torturous route uh, to the one consciousness. Uh, Desjardins uh, was very famous for saying we are not uh, human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Right. And what you say, I felt, is absolutely correct. God gave us life and God gave us a code of behavior by which to exist, saying to us, 
I created you. I know what's best for you. Here it is. If you follow it, if you follow my ways, then you'll get along well and you will succeed and good things will happen. And if you don't, if you are taken by your own arrogance and your own thoughts of your own power and your um, own greed, then there will be consequences for not following my way and trying to do it your way. Now you have free will. God gives us all free will. And God also tells us the consequences of using our free will. Use your free will for good and good will happen. Use your free will for evil and evil will happen. Follow my ways and it will be good for you. Ignore my ways and there will be consequences. Now, that gets us into the whole issue of theodicy theology. How does how to, as my colleague Rabbi Kushner put it, how to why do bad things happen to good people? It's a whole other discussion. Right. But the what the reality is that we know what what makes what makes for goodness, and we also know what makes for for a difficulty. Now it is a free will universe, and things happen. The universe unfolds in many ways, um, as it should. And sometimes we don't understand the consequences of what what is happening in a given moment. Um, I remember so well from the Bible that when uh, Joseph's brothers eventually uh, come to him in Egypt, and they had been so mean to him, and they, they, and his, they their lives, the life of their family was in his hands. And he said, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for, for good. There was a long story that had to be played out, in their case, just over a number of, of uh, decades. But there are also long stories that need to be played out that sometimes take centuries. And we don't know exactly how our little part fits into that divine blueprint, that lengthy plan. Um, but I'll tell you this, um, anybody who's been to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago will, will remember, I think it's still there, the gigantic model train set, right? So there's this gigantic model train. And when I was eight, 10 years old, I w went to stand near it and I couldn't see anything because I was way too short to see the whole thing laid out. But they gave us an elevator, an escalator that took us to a viewing area around the top of the train set. And there I saw a guy dressed up in a uh, railroad conductor's uh, uniform with the overalls and the hat and everything. And he had a gigantic transformer, which looked just like a bigger transformer than my little train set at home. And I knew that he could do anything he wanted. He could move his hand and uh, make the train go so fast that it would fall off the track or go so slowly that it would stop in the middle or keep his hands steady and the train would go around and then he could blow the whistle when he wanted to and come into the station when uh, he came around the, the curve. So um, free will is given, but all is known. So we can behave any way we want, but we know ultimately that it's in God's hands and what the 
ultimate blue, how the ultimate blueprint will play out or how our little place, our little role in that ultimate blueprint, we don't know and we can't see unless we had the same kind of um, large point of view that I got when I went up to the second floor and saw the train all laid out. That's how this world works. And therefore, I say to myself and I say to all of you and your, your listeners that given the choice, I'm going to choose to follow God's plan and to hope that the best happens as opposed to not following God's plan and knowing that there will be consequences. Yeah, it sort of reminded me of the uh, one of my um, favorite quotes. I think it's in the New Testament, I'm pretty sure. You know, without, without vision, the people perish. And the you, you always have to have, I mean, I think this is what faith is about. You have to have faith that the end point, the, this star, this top of the mountain that folks are pointing towards, that it really is there and that's going to come true. Because otherwise, these setbacks that we all encounter, whether it's the mass shooting, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's losing a job or a loved one, you know, there are a lot of setbacks in life. And uh, you have to you have to get going. So I I want to um, let me just let me just say yeah. to that if you don't mind sure. inter my interruption here for a second. Sure. Yes, and we have we have great control over it. There was a mass shooting in New Zealand. Fifty people were killed, and two weeks later, New Zealand banned AK-47s and uh, and uh, A-15s. Two weeks later. We have more people dead on the streets of America every day and every month and every year. And we don't do a damn thing about it because the guns are still on the street. We know the consequences of letting guns into hands that are going to do evil with them. Why don't we do something about it? There's a perfect example. God says, don't create weapons of mass destruction. And an AK-47 is, a, is a, a weapon of mass destruction. So we could do something about it, but we don't have the political will in this country. Yeah. And, and I, it, it, it I stuns me. Yes. It stuns me. Yeah, it really I is. don't want to take away anybody's Second Amendment rights, but it stuns me that the Second Amendment, which is from 18, 1789, is still the, the interpreted and not recently uh, affirmed law of the land uh, affirmed by the Supreme Court. The world hasn't changed since 1789. A gun in 1789 means uh, something very, very different than in 2021. So why don't we understand it and do something about it and stop slaying, slaying our children in their schools and their playgrounds and our friends on the streets of America? And that's a really good example of something that can be fixed pretty quickly. And I do recall that example of, of New Zealand, which, which shows a country that reacts with compassion and with reason and with common sense to something that is obvious, to something that is so blindly, blindingly obvious that folks should not have AK-47, which is a completely different topic. But I think it goes to the point of bringing these principles into action because we we can't like we're doing now walk around 
with high ideals, but then not carry out the basic um, good works in our daily lives, including outlawing AK-47s and many other weapons. Uh, so, so that is, um, I think, a really good example. Now, I, I, I want to say, we didn't have a chance to talk about it, that underlying my own view is that modern science has not helped with their God is dead uh, position. Uh, and I think that, I think there needs to be changes in science to, to uh, and I do think that change is close with regard to changing the, the paradigm. That's, that's really what I'm, what I'm about. But, but again, from the other perspective, I view what you're doing and what many others are doing is we're sort of waiting for the tidal wave of sort of spiritual awakening to spread a little broader but much deeper into modern society. It perhaps is spread on the surface, but it needs to spread deeper into our consciousness for us to take the necessary actions to carry out these ideals. Science creates nothing new. Science discovers what's already out there, what God put out there from the beginning. Right. Science changes every day because new discoveries are made every day. There's a little story in the book that scientists come to God and they say, hey, God, we've come to say goodbye to you. And God says, really, why? The scientist said, well, the only thing that you can still do that we can't do is to create ex nihilo, to create uh, out of nothing. And we have figured out a way to create human beings out of nothing. God says, that's fascinating. Please show me. And the scientist reaches down and picks up a clump of, of, uh, of ground, of, of, of dirt, and starts molding it and shaping it and forming it. And God looks on and says, ah, 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 use your own dirt. Yeah. <laughs> that was so it was, Robert, it was Robert Jastra, the late uh, uh, head of NASA, who said something like, uh, uh, scientists work for years and years and years and centuries to to climb the mountain. And just as we begin to get over the peak of the mountain, we see the theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Yeah, yeah it really it really is. There's this, and I think those two um, anecdotes that uh, that Wayne just gave sort of uh, are good are good illustration of the of the many uh, anecdotes stories in his book that make that make his book uh, radical, loving, one God, one world, one people, such such a good read. Uh, so Wayne, I'd like to thank you uh, in these conversations. The time always flies by. Uh, we, we did, I think, cover a lot of ground, not everything, but I think that uh, the, the reader, I think, it, I'm sorry, the listener has a sense of, of what you're about. And I think some of the topics we covered give a good sense of what your, of what your new book is about. I think the last thought I'm gonna leave here uh, leave the listener with is that, you know, I, I started talking on the top of the show about um, Richard Dawkins and his quote about how we're really um, robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the, so the selfish molecules known as genes 
And in, in, in Wayne's book, he makes this point about how the Bible says we're vessels through which God comes to earth. So I think we all have to ponder the question. Would we rather be robot vehicles programmed to preserve selfish molecules, or would we prefer to be vessels through which God comes to earth? And then the next point of that would be, do we have any choice? And I think that the answer is going to be, we don't have a choice. We are vessels through which God comes to earth. And the question is how we make um, good with that responsibility. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Wayne, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always. And uh, we will hope to see you soon. Thank you so much been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.